But last week, we took a, a little sidebar. I hope it was profitable to you. Because as we're closing, uh, actually next week, we will definitely be closing Genesis. If we don't do it today, and we probably won't, next week we will be absolutely done with Genesis. And that will be, I think, other than maybe a couple of other books, um, I can't think of the ones offhand that I would really want to dwell on, but other than the other books, Genesis is the most important book to dwell on the level we have been since October when we started. So um, hopefully it's, it's, last week was profitable to you because I showed you that, and, and this was the thread of really what we've been going through since October, is the fact that there are two kingdoms at work here. And what started, if you, if you want to look at it, it's, you've heard of the tale of two cities, or well, you can look at this as the tale of two cities, where you have Jerusalem, where God's eye is on the Temple Mount, so that's his city, rolling all the way out through the line that would come through the people of that city to the end where Jesus Christ takes the throne from Adam. He takes the rightful throne through the, king of David, or king, the line of King David and, and then is, is the ruler after those thousand years and the millennium for eternity. Then you have Satan's line, which comes through, actually it culminates before, like anything else does, like God's line does, but its city is Babylon. And the system of Babylon, we talked about that, the ecumenical and the economic system. And then, of course, his line of kingship runs through until the Antichrist. And then it's a chess game, isn't it? So we have this one tale of two cities. We have Babylon and its line from Adam all the way out to the Antichrist, hoping to win not only the world, the kingship of the world, but eternity. And, of course, the line of God, which, of course, starts in beforehand, but in Jerusalem, through his, pe his people, through the line of Judah, through King David, David, all the way through Jesus Christ, and hallelujah, he wins, of course, because we know the end from the beginning. But if you look at it that way, you'll understand a lot of what's happening in Scripture. You'll understand, as we go through the signs, as we go through the, the, the move and counter-move, this chess game, because let's face it, it is a chess game. And if you look at the book of Job, it really exemplifies how God works in this chess game. When Satan is allowed to say to God, because they still have a relationship in the book of Job, where he does come before God, even after, the, even after he sinned and was thrown out and, and was destined for hell. God actually says to Satan, where have you been? And he goes, I've been going through, you know, to and fro across the earth, because that's where he's bound pretty much in this realm. And... Uh, God says, um, have you observed my servant Job? And then he says, counter move. Yes, I have. And he's a great guy. But if you, uh, if you touch his family and everything he owns, he will curse you to his face. You all probably remember the story. And that's a very, a very good book of the example of this. I don't even want to say it's a tug of war. It's a game because God could stop it at any time. But he chooses not to. And we are the pawns in that chess game. And I've said this before. So having said all of this, if you take all of what we talk about, and hopefully you're studying my notes, and any study you do on your own in Scripture, just put it in the context of that chess game, and it will make a lot of sense. It will make a lot more sense than it would if you just tried to read it as a novel, as a bunch of stories. So last week, in that vein, we talked about the government of God. We talked about how Satan is trying to take over this world, and the way he has to do it is through usurping will. And how you usurp somebody's will is, first of all, enslave them, and that's the best way to usurp their will, because once you only give them enough to keep them hungry, guess who they're going to follow? They're going to follow you like ducklings. We've seen this happening time and time again. But God's plan is that everybody has property, and we will have our own property in eternity. We will have, as part of the rewards we are given, we will have our own property. Of course, God still owns everything. But it's a, there's a difference. When Satan owns everything, he controls everything to the nth degree to enslave you. 
When God owns everything, he gives it to you for your enjoyment and to build for eternity. Isn't that great? What, uh, what would you rather be, in, in Satan's socialism or God's freedom? I would say God's freedom. So we, we had that side view because I wanted to, to, you to understand this country is headed to a place it has never been before. And watch what's happening. Be ready to give that answer now as in a global way. Now you understand. You understand it. Also, what I wanted to tell you, and I put it in my notes. It wasn't in my notes last week, but I was reading it uh, this, actually this morning, and I put it in there on page 170 in my notes to look at the book, or in the book of Isaiah, chapter 23. We talked about in, in the book of Ezekiel where, where God says about Tyre, the city of Tyre. We traced from Laban, the traders, the world traders, the city of Tyre in Lebanon now. And he says, your merchandise was beautiful and you traded gold for rubies and you did all of these things. And we talked about Tyre establishing the first credit and debit system and what we have today, which got us in big trouble. We talked all about that last week. But Isaiah 23, which I didn't reference last week, talks about um, the realization of this uh, personification of this economic thread and what God is going to do to it. Just remember that this is the thread we talked about. But today we're going to move on. So if you want to turn to, uh, to Genesis chapter 32... We're going to talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. We've gone through Abraham. We've gone through Isaac. We've gone through Jacob. We've gone through all of, I love this word, their shenanigans. <laughs> we've seen their personalities. We've seen how the story of Scripture rolls out. And we've also seen God's provision and his surety in his election and his shepherding through his plan, no matter what anybody else does through that. But, of course, the conduct and what we do, in, 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 either for God or against God, in God's will or out of God's will, has repercussions. As a pebble dropped in a p quiet pond, those ripples ripple out. And you see that there are peoples that came out of illicit relationships from them who are now Israel's enemies and seeking to destroy them today. We tracked at least one of those peoples, the Edomites from Esau, to the Palestinians of today. So that's the major lesson to learn. However, God's plan does stand. But the application in life for all of us is don't take sin lightly. Furthermore, and just as important, don't take, and I say this when I say you, I mean me. There's no exceptions to these rules. If there's anything in your life, anything at all, that is hindering you or that is sinful, stop. Keep a short account with God and stop. Because it will, Satan will use that chink in your armor to lead you down a path as Jacob did, as Abraham did, as Isaac did, and as, as you're going to see now, even when we talk about the line of Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery and did some evil things. Some of his brothers became the actual, more, more of the modern type enemies uh, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, like the Midianites of Israel. My point is this, if we have to learn from Scripture that what we do will not thwart God's plan, that's a good thing. But the bad thing is, is that it can make life miserable for us, those around us, and not only grieve God like God is crying, you know, very sad about what we do, but it'll grieve God because you do not know what the repercussions of the ripples in the stream that you and I cause will, ha will hold from now until the end of this, of, this, uh, of this dispensation. Be very careful in your walk. And you know what? I have come to understand that more as I have studied Scripture. You know, you know that as a Christian. That's one of the other reasons why I tell you to study. You know, my thrust is what? To be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within you. Don't just be a Christian and talk about Christ and Him crucified. Be a Christian and know the mechanics of Scripture. Why? Because you have to be able to explain it. When people come to you and say, why is this or that happening? But you also have to be able to live your life 
in a way that not just because you're told to, because it's good Christian conduct and you just have to do it, you have to understand why. It's you, you and I are part of this chess game. Make no mistake about it. You're either a pawn in the army of God or you're a pawn as a Gentile away from the army of God or anybody else that is not under Jesus Christ. So as we have said all of that, let's start moving forward and talk about now the genesis of the most important set of peoples ever to be put on this planet, the 12 tribes of Israel. So let's look at Genesis chapter 32 and uh, uh, verse 22. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now, I'm going to ask this question. We're going to, we're going to sh talk about it, but who do you think that man was, if you know this story? Jesus. That's right, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. That's right. We also know that Jesus Christ was one of the, of the three, quote-unquote, men that met Abraham before they went to destroy the city of Sodom. Understand that Jesus Christ did not just come as a human being or a type of a human being the first time when he became Jesus Christ. However, the most important incarnation as a human being was when he came as Jesus Christ, right? But that does not preclude him from interacting as an angel would, turning into or mimicking, if you will, a human being. So just to keep that in mind, but this is a very important uh, wrestling match, as it were. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, now isn't that interesting? Here's Jesus Christ wrestling with a fleshy man named Jacob. And the scripture puts it, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, what did he do? He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. Now here's Jesus Christ almost like crying, let me go. Isn't that interesting? Why is he doing this? Well, we'll keep reading. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, Remember when, when Abraham met Melchizedek? He knew there was something special or, or different about this particular man. That's why it is very strongly inferred that Melchizedek was a yet another version of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Now, nobody's really 100% sure of that, but we, I showed you in the New Testament where it is absolutely said that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek had the priesthood, right, wrapped up as also the kingship. But the point is this. He knew there was something special. So what did Abraham do? He tithed to Melchizedek. That's interesting, isn't it? And what did Melchizedek bring him? Bread and wine, two major symbols. Well, here we have sort of the same kind of thing. Jacob understands that there's something very different about this man with whom he's wrestling. Bless me. Jacob, as you can see, if you followed his personality that we've tracked, he's not really caring about people blessing him. He's typically wanting to bless himself and giving the blessing. But here, here is the, here's the special relationship. Now also, he touches, this man touches the hollow or Jacob's hip and puts it out of joint. It remained that way for the rest of his life as a reminder of this wrestling match. Paul, the apostle, had a major, uh, not a major, but an infirmity that he wanted to be released from too. But God said, you know, my strength will be sufficient for you. Here's the point. I, I don't know how interrelated these two incidences are where Jacob with his God-placed infirmity and, and Paul, where he says Satan was given, uh, enabled to give him a thorn. The point is this. An infirmity will be used by God. Sometimes God causes them. Sometimes he allows them to happen. If we look back at, again at the story of Jacob, the same thing happened. It wasn't God who took his family away and his possessions. It wasn't God who destroyed his life. 
Did I say Job? I'm sorry, I meant Job. Oh, thank you. Yes, I, I thought I said Job. You're right, I am getting old. My hearing's not only going, but I'm having more senior moments, so keep me honest. Thank you. My, that's why I married a woman who's six years younger than me, because I need this help as I get older. You know? When you bring me up in the wheelchair, remember, I'll tell you what to say. Thank you, because I need to be reminded. Yes, Job. It's a good thing she knows scripture as well as I do, because otherwise she wouldn't be able to help me. Yes, Job. Remember that God did not take all of these things away from him. However, he did allow Satan to do it. And, of course, it was to prove a point, isn't it? That Jacob, I mean, Job. Job. I don't know if that's a Freudian slip or what, but Job. Job never lost his faith in God. However, if you notice in the book of Job, God took him to task. And we talked about that formally, didn't we? Where were you, Job, when I created this? And he also said, where were you when I created the constellations, which he names way before anybody knew they were constellations. The 12 constellations, the 12 signs of the zodiac, which we reviewed, and we're going to talk about it again here as we talk about Joseph, shows the plan of salvation from beginning to end in the 12 signs of the zodiac. If you don't know that, or you didn't ever knew that, or it's something new, or you've just heard about it maybe, look at my notes. Read the first 25 pages, and it will explain it to you. And you will be amazed at the gospel written in the stars before scripture was ever inspired for man to put pen to papyrus. It wasn't until after about 1,500 years the first book of Scripture was actually written, and that <coughs> was the book of Job. Isn't that interesting? This plan was all mapped out beforehand. In Genesis 30, 32 and 27, so the man asked him, what is your name? Ah, so here's this Jesus now asking Jacob, what's your name? Didn't he know his name? The point is, as we move on here, follow the story flow. We've talked about God saying to Moses, I'm going, to be, I'm going to destroy these people and let you become a great nation, right? We've talked about, and we wonder, well, could Moses have changed God's mind? And, and no, 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 no. Whenever a question is asked by God of a mere human being, it's not because he's looking for counsel from that human being. It is for us as we read the story. So look at it in that thrust because God never changes and God is no respecter of persons. So when you see this, look at it from what it's trying, Scripture is trying to show you. That's one of the major thrusts of hermeneutics. If there's a literal interpretation or a literal thing presented, take it as such. If it's presented as a, um, a story or if it's presented as a parable or if it's presented as an abstract, like all of the symbols in Revelation and Daniel, you should understand those symbols and understand those abstracts as you, as you study. But... In any case, the other principle is this, where it is an abstract, always look for what it intends to convey. And it will, if you, if you keep those two major principles of hermeneutics in your mind as you study, you, you will very rarely have real issues with scripture. Yes? The third major principle is context. Oh yeah, right. Context is, is key. And to your point, you cannot understand the symbols and a lot of things in Scripture unless you know what those symbols mean and how they came about, which means the story flows. Like, for instance, there is no way you can study Revelation and not know the book of Daniel. And there is no way you can study the book of Daniel unless you know the rest of pretty much the history of Israel and, and so forth. And the kings of Israel and all those kind of things, right? So you're absolutely right. And as a matter of fact, I said that at the beginning of my notes. The fir first thing that you seek to change that will change, and as a matter of fact, a couple of you told me this has changed in your life, is your worldview. When you learn scripture, you learn the depth of what God says, your worldview will change and it will map into God's worldview. You'll forget how you thought beforehand and then you'll start really wondering how people, whether Christian or not, around you think the way they do. 
because your worldview will change. And I also, right on the heels of that, did exactly what you talked about, Bob, is context. And I, I also gave a little parable about a man who was going to commit suicide because he got so depressed and he was a Christian. And you, you can read it in my, I think it's one of the first few pages of my notes. And he starts saying, well, I've had my Bible for a long time and I've studied it here and there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have God tell me what to do because I'm at my wit's end. I'm going to commit suicide. So he flips open the Bible and he flipping through the pages. He says, God, wherever you stop my finger is what you want me to know. So the first thing he puts his finger, and I think it's in 1 Samuel somewhere, and the scripture says, in the second part of that scripture, that verse, it says, and he put his house in order and he hanged himself. <laughs> and then the second he does that, he's all upset. And then he puts his finger again, he flips the pages, and puts his finger in again, and he stops somewhere else in scripture. And it says, this you must do to glorify the, the Lord's name. And then he goes into the book of John somewhere, and he says, whatever you do, do quickly. <laughs> <laughs> So it is your Bob, you're 100% right. It's context. So Jacob says, what is your name? And Jacob answered. He says, Jacob. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Here's the beginning of Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. What is Israel's hallmark? <laughs> that nation of people. In again, out again, always fighting with God and against God. Jesus condemned the Pharisees because of that, and the peoples continue to fight with the peoples around them till this day. But they will overcome. They will be saved. They will be saved. As a nation, they will be saved, and they will have that land back. But we're talking about prophecy, which we can't get into right now, but we will get into. So Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face. Now Jacob asked him his name, but Jacob already knew who he was. I guess he wanted to be sure. It's like maybe when you were a younger Christian, or even sometimes now, sometimes you pray and you want to make sure that God's hearing you. you know, so it's like, I want to give me a sign that you're really listening to me. You know? That may be kind of it, but you see the point. And, my, and yet my life was spared. So in 31, verse 31, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, uh, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Now that became, yes? I, I just uh, was noting the word Peniel. It means the face of God. What if that would uh, put more fuel into this person he was wrestling with is Jesus Christ. I think you're right. And he says it verbatim here because I saw God face to face. Yes. You are 100% correct. Yep. And isn't it funny how they named exactly that? They did that a lot of that, didn't they? They named those cities. And they named people. People's names. Even they, they, We talked about this in the past. They named their wells because they loved their wells. They needed them for water. So the things they loved, the things that were special, they gave special names to to give them an infamy because a name is a very important detail. So you're absolutely right. Thank you very much. So it's interesting to note that Jacob uh, is the name referred to when he is mentioned in the context of his fleshly lineage. Listen to this. You always hear of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? No. You hear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and why? Because that's his fleshly lineage. When he became Israel, that's when his spiritual lineage started. And that's when, I mean, it was all planned out by God, but Jesus Christ would come through that link because he saw God face to face. And he is the patriarch now that is going to have the 12 sons 
And one of those sons, Judah, is going to have the line through which Messiah, the king of Israel and Messiah, the, the whole kingship would come. We're going to talk about that quite a bit. And he wrestled with Jesus and, and he was given that name by whom? The Messiah, through which he was going to come through him. Isn't that like a circular? The world would never understand that. But you and I understand that. Why? Because Jesus even asked his, his, uh, his disciples, or his apostles, uh, disciples, um, who, do you, who, does men, who do men say that I am? Oh, you're Elijah the prophet. Remember, Elijah was prophesied to come. They say you're John the Baptist. They, they really have no clue. But then he says, who do you say that I am? He says, well, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he, what did he say? You only know that because it was given to you to know. You and I only know this because it was given to us to know. You know, I've met people, you've probably met people too. They may call themselves Christian, they may not. And they say they've read scripture, but they have no clue. Isn't it amazing? Because they have not the Holy Spirit, either by choice, which of course they, we all have a choice, or because they don't study. But when they do read it, they can make the understanding. There are people who could read this and have no clue. Well, you and I have a clue because it's been given us to know. Keep that as precious. Yes? Just the same with the Jewish people, that, that there are those who are Jewish who have read it and, and they understand it. And it's a precious gift. Right, but there's Joes who read it and don't understand it. You're right. As a matter of fact, Marla, that's a very good point. Because today in Israel, if you are an Israeli and you go to school, I think you probably know this point. If you're an Israeli and you're going to high school, you are learning the New Testament. It is required study to learn, not the Old Testament. Of course, you're learning that as you grow up, as a Jew. But you're required to learn the New Testament. Why? Because of all the Christian tourists. But here's my point, just as you said. You can read the New Testament and study it and be required to learn it as courses in high school. Just like reading, writing, and arithmetic in New Testament, but never understand what it means because of this. Good point, Marla. Thank you. Um, that brings to mind when I was in Israel, we had a guy who wasn't Jew. He knew the New Testament. I mean, he could quote anything yep. if he didn't know what That's right. That's because he had to study it. Yeah, I, so it, it but they make excellent tour guides, don't they? And they got your money, didn't they? That's smart. I told you that joke about that Jewish man. All right, I'll tell it again because not every one of you are here. Jewish man goes, goes take a trip. He's in New York City and he needs to take a trip to Israel. And he needs to go for two weeks. So he goes into a bank and he says, I need to borrow $5,000. Bank says, okay, but you know, we need some collateral here. So he goes, well, my car's parked outside. You can have that as collateral. They go out, they look at the car. It's a $250,000 Ferrari. So they say, okay, we will lend you the money. So they lend him the $5,000, and they take the car, and they're laughing as the guy's leaving. He's like, he's got a $250,000 car, and he's borrowing $5,000 from us? So they take the car, and they put it into the bank's parking lot under the ground in Manhattan, and it sits there for two weeks, right? And then they're laughing at the guy. So the guy comes back from Israel after two weeks, and he comes in, and he pays the $5,000 back with the interest, which came to $14 or $15. We'll say it's $15, around $15. The bank says, the manager of the bank says, you know, we, we checked you out. We, you were legit. You're a millionaire. And yet, why would you come and, buy, and borrow $5,000 and leave your car as collateral? He goes, well, he says, you know, he says, I had to go to Israel for two weeks. He says, where else can I park my car for two weeks for $15 and make sure it's there when I get back? <laughs> That's the Jewish mindset. They're very smart people. <laughs> so... All right, let's go to Genesis chapter 35 and verse 23. 
So we understand a little bit near, here about the, the 12 tribes. We're going to talk about the genesis of the 12 tribes because we have to understand this as we move to the close of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 35 and verse 23. Now remember, as we go over the 12 sons of Jacob, these sons were born out of lies, deceit, cajoling, barren wives who have their handmaidens give, you know, sleep with the husband and give birth. I mean, this, this, is a, this was sort of a part of their custom in those days. But was it part of God's plan? Is it ever part of God's plan? No. But God used it. Jacob had 12 sons. The sons of Leah were Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, she only had two. Remember, she was barren. But she did finally have two. Of course, Joseph, which will figure greatly in what we're going to be talking about soon, and Benjamin. A key point to remember is that Rachel bore Joseph first as the first that came from her formerly barren womb and bore Benjamin the second. These two were very greatly loved by her and especially by Jacob as well. Continuing in verse 25, the sons of Rachel's maidservant Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Leah's maidservant Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Now, twelve sons and at least one daughter, Dinah, were born to Jacob, his wives, and their two handmaidens. Isn't this whole family tree getting a little complicated? So in my notes, I have a chart, which you can see if you look at my notes. BibleStudyWeekly.net. You'll never remember everything you hear here. And so I suggest strongly you go to my notes. But if you, if you look at it, on this chart it says Abraham is the patriarch, and it goes through Hagar, Hagar Sarah, and his last wife, Keterah, uh, and the, the children that they had through them. Of course, the major line being Sarah through Isaac and then Jacob. And then here's the 13 sons listed of the 12 tribes of Israel. We're going to talk about that. Also, we see Esau coming out of um, uh, Isaac. Remember, Esau was Jacob's twin. And, of course, they go through to the line of what today are the Palestinians. We look at the, the sons of Keterah, and through one of the sons, Midian, come the Midianites, who figure also greatly as an enemy of, of Israel. So you see all of the shenanigans going on here, and it's all because of these men and uh, their wives who weren't fully committed to God's way, but were committed to God, and God worked through them. Anyway, if you counted, you would notice that there are 13 sons listed. When Joseph goes down to Egypt in, in chapter 37 of Genesis, and we're going to talk about that, I just wanted to some, summarize some things here. He marries a Gentile woman named Azanath uh, and, and has Manasseh and Ephraim with her. Then the whole family is reunited again in Egypt. This is a story we haven't gone through yet, so I don't expect you to know all of it. We're going to, we're going to get there. And then Jacob adopts Manasseh and Ephraim. So in the line of Joseph, you have Jacob, who married Rachel, right? Rachel and Leah, and he also had the handmaidens. But the key is, is that Manasseh and Ephraim are sons of Joseph, but because Jacob, the patriarch, Israel, adopts them later on in Egypt, they are adopted, and I have the scripture here, as the sons of Jacob. And the key here thing is this. First of all, there's the tribe of Dan, which we haven't talked about yet. But Dan, as I mentioned to you, is this lost tribe. Well, if you trace Dan... I'm not going to get into it, but it is a very strong, very, very strong, it's almost a guaranteed inference that they became the peoples who became the Greeks. And they will be figured into the line of the Antichrist. Because the Antichrist will have to, by necessity, have Jewish blood in him. And also, I will tell you, and I can't read it here, but when Jacob bestows his blessings on the twelve sons, but when he's about to die again, yet future, we haven't gone into that yet, 
He says of the tribe of Dan that you will judge your people. Interesting. We're going to talk about, though, the prophecy to the line of Judah from Jacob because it is very important to understand what happened to these people and those prophecies were more than prophecies. They were blessings. They were more than blessings. They were prophecies. We should put it that way. Let's move forward to Genesis chapter 48, verse 3. Genesis chapter 48 and verse 3. Jacob said to Joseph, now again, we haven't gotten here yet, but I just want to build the story of the 12 tribes for you. So as we wrap up Genesis, you'll have the whole picture of, of how we got to the end of Genesis and move on to Exodus, where all of these people have developed as, nation, as, a, as a nation of people already and moving on. So Jacob said to Joseph, remember Jacob is Israel. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me. Remember the story of Jacob's ladder, where he saw the angels ascending and descending on this ladder, and he had a pillow as a rock? for his head. That's when he first knew about the blessing. And then God came to him after that and told him what he's going to say here. He says, and he said to me in verse four, I am going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples and I will give you this land as an everlasting possession. How many times have we heard this before? So let me ask you a question. Whose land is it? Israel. Amen. And they're going to get a lot more than they've been cornered into now. I will make this an everlasting possession to you, to your descendants after you. Now then, now listen to this, your two sons, in verse 48 and verse 5, your two sons born to you in Egypt. Now, remember, he's talking to Joseph. Who were the sons that were born to him in Egypt? Ephraim and Manasseh. I just told you about this. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine, directly born of him. Any children born to you after them will be yours. So he doesn't really care about the others after them, but he's talking about Ephraim and Manasseh. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers, the other portion of Israel. That's why there are 13. And here's another thing. You've heard of the tribe of Levi. Levi became the Levit Levitical priesthood. When Israel had to go out and fight the battles, Levi didn't go. Levi had to attend the temple or the tabernacle or whatever they had at the time. But they still needed to account for 12 tribes. So there, there, are, there are many, many times, I think there are over 20 or about 20 times that the 12 tribes of Israel are mentioned in Scripture. And they vary. Sometimes Ephraim is there, sometimes Manasseh is there, sometimes it's just Joseph. But it's always to make sure that we all understand that there are 12 tribes always accounted for. Yes? Levi doesn't inherit from the land either. That's right. That's right. Because they are, they are the spiritual component, if you will, of these physical people in the priesthood. But you're absolutely right. And the only time that the priesthood and the, uh, the kingship were, which is the line of Judah, were combined was in Melchizedek. And that's what made him special. Because after that, when these people came to be, there were separate tribes for the kingship and separate tribes for the priesthood. Moving into 48 and verse 10. Israel's eyes, oh Jacob, remember now the, change, the names are interchangeable here, but you know who he's talking about here. When it's a spiritual component, his name is Israel. When it's a more fleshly component, his name is Jacob. So you can see why it's, it's uh, interspr uh, rather they, they change the name, but you know who it is. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Again, a story we haven't gone into yet. We will starting next week. Then Joseph removed from Israel's knees, removed them from Israel's knees, because they were still young boys at that time, and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right, toward Israel's left. Now get the positioning here. 
and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Have we heard of this before? Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all, all my life to this day, the angel, capital A, who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased because, again, isn't the older supposed to be the, the king? He took hold of his father's hand and moved it from Ephraim's head uh, to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this is one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name uh, will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Get the storyline here. There, these are other instances of the firstborn getting the blessing. Isaac and Ishmael, right? Ishmael was born first, but Isaac was the son of promise. Jacob and Esau. Moses was younger than Aaron. And David was the youngest of all his brothers when he was selected as king of, of, of Jesse's children. Cain and Abel. Absolutely. That's right. That's another good one. Turn to Genesis 37, verse 1. Absolutely. Turn Genesis 37, verse 1. Now that we've set the stage, we'll let Scripture tell us the very important story of Jacob's son, Joseph. We're going to talk a little bit more about Joseph here. And then we're going to wrap up shortly. Next week, we're going to finish the story of Joseph. And we're going to leave Genesis with a group of people in Egypt that are now flourishing as the 12 tribes of Israel. And now, at that point, Pharaoh is going to be enraged because they're starting to take over. Their birth rate is much higher than Egyptian women. Have you heard of this before? What do they do? That's where Genesis wraps up. We'll get there next week. Genesis 37 and verse 1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. So we have no doubt of where they are. And this is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, with his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. So he's a snitch. Another character flaw in this whole family here. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he had made, made a richly ornamented robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word about him. Joseph had a dream. By the way, the coat of many colors, if you look at the, actually the better translation of it, it really doesn't mean a coat of many colors. It really means a coat of a seamless structure, just like was given to Jesus. Kings wore tunics of a seamless structure because it was very expensive and it was royal to do that, to make them that way. So think of that. Joseph had a dream. And when he had told his brothers, they hated him all the more. And he said, listen to this. I had a dream. It's almost like he's bragging to his brothers. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Ooh. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? So they knew exactly what this dream was supposed to mean. Will you actually rule us? And then they hated him all the more. 
because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told his brothers, listen, he said, I had another dream and his time, the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now we need to stop here. We're going to wrap this up, but I want to make this point. The first dream we can understand, that's very, very easy to understand. But this second dream, where the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing to me, first of all, without going to all of the hermeneutics about it, I can tell you this because we have to move on. The sun and the moon represent Jacob and Rachel. The sun being Jacob and the moon being his mother, Rachel. And the 11 stars represent the balance of the 12 tribes of Israel because he's one of them, right? So he's going to rule over the progeny of his mother and father, which are these 11 stars. There's no 12 here because he is the 12th star. Remember that at the beginning of our study, and I mentioned this at the beginning of this, this uh, lesson today, we detailed the 12 signs of the zodiac and how they mapped the plan of salvation and the gospel story in their pre-Babylonian read, pre-astrology uh, interpretation, right? We're talking about astronomy, not astrology. The 12 constellations and their name as constellation is Mazaroth in Hebrew are identified with the 12 tribes of Israel. And I want to read this to you. Just listen very carefully. The sun and the moon and the 11 stars. I'm going to read to you from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. It's in my notes. I'm just reading it to you, so don't turn there. This is in the middle of the tribulation. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun. Think of this. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sight appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky. So we see in these stars are the fallen angels because a third of them went with Satan, right? But the, 11, the 12 stars on this woman's crown here is the key. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Do I have to interpret all this for you? Do you understand who this woman is? And who the 12 stars are? And who the male child is? Through the star called Judah. And now she's taken to a place of safety during the tribulation, which is probably going to be Petra. We talked about that. But let me read you this one thing, and then we're going to wrap up. Genesis chapter 49. I do want you to turn there. Genesis chapter 49 and verse 8. Here, Jacob is, remember I mentioned at the beginning of this lesson, Jacob blesses the 12 sons and gives them a prophecy of what they will turn out to be. Remember I just read you about the woman who was clothed with the sun, had the moon under her feet, and the 12 stars in her crown? Remember I told you she was going to give birth to a male child? Remember I told you that this child, it says in Revelation, was going to rule the nations with an iron scepter? Judah, in verse, chapter 49 and verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you. This is Jacob now, saying this about the line of Judah. Your brothers will praise you. Wait, didn't we just read about how they hated him? Because he had those dreams? This is through Joseph. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies and your father's sons will bow down to you. Didn't we just read that about Joseph? You see how the lion comes through Joseph and Judah? You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You'll return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Who will rouse him? Now, I told you, and if you look at my notes, you'll understand this. In the constellation of Leo is the star Regulus. 
which is the kingship. It's, and there's a, it comes in between the paws of Leo as the scepter of the king. If you were in my class, you know that. If not, read my notes, because it's true. It's true. Let me say it again. It's true. The gospel is written in the stars just as we're reading it here before scripture was ever written. Leo is a lion and it's not by accident. God created those constellations as we saw, I told you in the book of Job, he talks about Orion, he talks about Ursa Major and Ursa Meyer, which is the bears. Believe it. Read my notes because it's very important that you understand that. And this is the prophecy. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Who will rouse him? Now, verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. And then it further says, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. If you remember, and by the way, his, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter, are whiter than milk. If you remember, what did they say Hosanna in the highest when Jesus what? Came riding on a colt into Jerusalem and they were throwing palm leaves in front of him and throwing their coats because they said, here is the king of Israel. Do you see the prophecy here? Do you see it also says he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes? What is the signature of Jesus Christ when he comes in Revelation 19? His robes are dripping with blood. And why? Because he's judging the nations. He's the one who does the judging. He's the one who slays the wicked. And this blood is equated to what? He is treading the winepress of God's wrath. I have found the value of learning this stuff deeply. I hope this cements in your mind who God is and who Jesus Christ is and how this all points through prophecy through the teachings directly from Scripture if you take the time to understand. Come to the class. If you don't have the class time, that's fine. Read the notes or go somewhere else for your studies. Why am I being so adamant? Because you will never get the value I would like you to have that I've given, been given by God to teach this stuff. And I'm not a rocket scientist. And you aren't either, but it's okay because God will give you what you pursue. So you make the choice. See you next week. We're going to wrap up Genesis and uh, the story of Joseph. And then we move on to them getting out of Egypt. Hallelujah. <laughs>